Hello, music teacher friends. Welcome to episode number 95 of the Beyond Measure podcast. My name is Christina Whitlock, and I host this podcast to hold space for you as your anytime piano teacher friend. So, you may have noticed we didn't have an episode last week. I am so sorry. I was very under the weather, and you can probably still hear it a little bit in my voice, but last week I had really no voice at all, and you know what? It's kind of hard to release a podcast when you can't talk. (laughs) So anyway, we're back at it today. I'm going to take lots of breaks as I record and hope that we can have a fruitful conversation today. So I should warn you, today we are going for it, my friends. (laughs) We are going to talk about the bane of so many of your existences. Team sports. Oh yeah, we're doing it. (laughs) And spoiler alert, I will tell you right now, rather than just spouting off annoyances today, I'm actually taking probably a different perspective than you think. Are you ready? Let's dive in. You guys probably know that I have been around in piano teacher world for a really long time. 68% of my life, in fact. But it did not take me long to discover the fact that most music teachers often feel pretty contentious when it comes to the idea of kids in team sports. (laughs) And I mean, why wouldn't we? As we've discussed a lot recently on this podcast, time is one of our most valued commodities. That means anything that messes with our time, (laughs) like uh, soccer practice, is likely to make us feel disproportionately frustrated. It's totally understandable. I mean, there are only so many hours in the day, and we have to play gatekeeper to this master schedule that involves all of the schedules and transportation issues and personal preferences to, well, a whole bunch of people. Solidarity, friends. It really is a gigantic feat that we do. But here's the thing. Even though there is a clear reason that sports practices and game schedules can be frustrating, we have to ask ourselves if that situation is going to change. And that answer is no. It is my very strong opinion that if you are the one who is drawing the line in the sand, essentially asking students to choose between music and sports, then you are probably the one who is going to lose. Before we go any further, let me give you a little bit of the backstory behind my body of research surrounding team sports and the music studio. So I've actually been sitting on this content for a really long time, and I have held off talking about this exact topic on the podcast for... Well, I don't know, I guess 94 episodes, apparently. (laughs) So here's the deal. The very first session I ever presented at a national conference was titled The Varsity Musicians Playbook, Commitment Building Strategies from Team Sports to the Studio. 
And that was at the San Antonio conference back in 2016. And it continues to this day to be my most requested session to present for music teacher groups all over the country. I wrote a three-part blog series for my friend Amy Chaplin over at pianopantry.com around these ideas several years ago. And basically, this is a collection of thoughts that have proven to resonate very strongly in music teacher world, and I know it. But I think when I launched this podcast, I needed to prove to myself that I wasn't sort of like a one-hit wonder. <laughs> so I guess I just wanted to make sure the value of my perspectives reached beyond this one subject area. But, goodness friends, the amount of frustration looming out there about this conflict between team sports and piano lessons, or whatever kind of lessons, seems to be more heated than ever before. So, seeing as how this podcast will turn two years old and hit 100 episodes next month, I figure maybe it's actually time for me to address the topic here. <laughs> Do you agree? I hope so. So, here's the deal. Truth be told, I have given 20, 60, and 90-minute versions of this presentation, and I have still never even come close to covering everything I want to say and all the research I've done. I do plan on turning this content into a video course at some point, and I will drop a link in the show notes for you to sign up for updates on that content if you find that this resonates with you. But here is the gist, all right? Instead of complaining about how students prioritize team sports over their music study, let's instead ask ourselves what we have to learn from those teams. The first thing that I find endlessly fascinating is the fact that so many of the known benefits of music study are also known benefits of team sports. Now, I know you may or may not believe me or want to believe me about that, but you know those lengthy lists of benefits that we all know by heart that come from music study? I'm talking about things like improved logic and analytic and reasoning skills, or like physical coordination, increased concentration, greater levels of empathy, improved academic performance, higher levels of productivity overall, or, you know, just greater mental and emotional stability, right? I mean, those are all what I consider to be bonus effects of studying music, right? And I never want to discount the importance of studying music just for the sake of studying music, because that in itself is a very worthy goal. But yeah, I mean, we know the act of music study brings with it all kinds of other strengthened skill sets. But guess what? All of those benefits I just listed, research also supports the fact that team sports contribute to strengthening those same skill sets. So, to be brutally honest, friends, music study does carry its own unique merits. Of course it does. <laughs> 
but we cannot walk around on our high horses and claim how terrific music study is while acting like soccer is just about kicking a ball around a field. It's just not. The argument is not that simple. And furthermore, who said this even needs to be an argument? (laughs) Why does it have to be us versus them if we are all kind of in this for the same benefits for these students, right? (laughs) So regardless, I am pretty fascinated, obviously, by the overlap in strengths that people develop from participating in team sports and in music study. This tells me, again, that we are after the same thing. So, just like I'm always reminding teachers here that your local music teachers are your colleagues and not your competition, a very similar parallel can be drawn to the local sports coaches. They really are not the enemy, friends. (laughs) And I would venture to guess that coaches probably have no idea how demonized they are in our profession sometimes. Now, here is something else interesting. Not only do we share bonus benefits together, but, I mean, just run a quick Google search of current research in sports psychology. Do you want to know what you're going to find? How about research areas like performance anxiety and effective practice techniques and mental health and its relationship to physical performance? (laughs) There's things like motivation and focus and kinesthetic movements, including fine motor skills and Overall, just engaging students in the 21st century. So, huh, (laughs) wow, not only are we aiming to accomplish many of the same things through these mutual activities, but the research into how we can do these things most effectively is also largely the same. I mean, I know I have been to a session or two or 20 on performance anxiety in my time. I know that I put a lot of time into learning more effective practice techniques. I know I understand our physical performance is heavily dependent on our mental state. I like to study ways to improve motivation and focus and movement and Um, I definitely need all the research involving ways to engage students in the 21st century. So it seems to me that with all of these now undeniable parallels between team sports and music study, that we actually have a lot to learn from our sporty comrades, right? (laughs) For sure. In fact, if you don't mind me getting on my soapbox for a moment, we often have things to learn from the people we perceive as adversaries. (laughs) If we focus less on complaining about things we deem unfair or incorrect, and instead shift our focus to what we can learn from our annoyances, (laughs) we can almost always come away with something useful. And I can hear you guys now. You're like, all right, Christina, so maybe we have more in common than we realized, but I still want to know how to keep Billy coming to his lessons during baseball season, (laughs) right? I hear you, and I've got you. 
The key to keeping students committed to your studio is creating a sense of what I call interdependence. You want your students to feel connected to your studio in a way that is bigger than just simply showing up for X number of minutes each week for their private lesson. They need to feel like they are part of something. The human spirit is designed to belong. It's one of the reasons you listen to this podcast, I imagine. I mean, don't you want to know that someone is out there who is right in there with you in the ups and downs of studio teacher life? (laughs) I know I do. We all know that kids like team sports because they are, quote, social, but I actually believe it runs deeper than that because I think there are lots of opportunities for kids to be together, but team sports do something exceptionally well that other activities sometimes miss. And that's the fact that they give each individual student a role to play in the larger group. As in, each student knows what is expected of them on their team. The quarterback of the football team knows exactly what his role is. If you play center field on the baseball team, you know what your job is. What's even more magical about the team dynamic is this. The players know their role, and they also know what they can expect from others on their team. They see how individual responsibilities add up to the sum of the whole. So, what does this mean in the music studio, you're asking? (laughs) Well, in short... Students need to feel like they are part of something. This can be accomplished in the most obvious ways by incorporating collaborative opportunities with your students. (laughs) Do they play duets and trios with other students on a regular basis? Mind you, this is certainly not the only option for creating interdependence, but it is surely the most obvious. Incorporating opportunities for your students to be responsible for fulfilling one specific role while depending on others to fulfill theirs is magic in the studio. Let's take a look at an example of something that is less obvious, shall we? I am a huge fan of what I call complete works projects. And this is where I have a select group of students work through the same resource, and then I bring them together to present the entire collection as a whole. Let's say I'm going to host an elementary group class next month where each of the students in attendance will play one piece from, oh, I don't know, The Best of Martha Muir, book one. (laughs) That's one of my favorite early elementary publications from the Alfred catalog. So if Billy understands the goal is to present the entire collection, the entire book, from start to finish, and he knows that he is responsible for playing gold doubloons, that's one of the titles from that book, he is going to be very motivated to make that happen. Now, you can choose a supplemental book, like Jason Sifford's Weightless Collection. That's another one I've used recently. Or you could even choose to present just a portion of a method book that you use often. 
I have done complete works projects on very small casual scales, like just hosting a small group class for the performance. And I've also done them on a pretty large scale as well. The example I like to use is that several years ago, I had, I don't know, maybe 15 students work together to present Bergmuller's Opus 100 in its entirety. So for those of us in piano teacher world, this is kind of a landmark collection, which includes a very popular ballade, the arabesque, the chase, I mean, pieces that we teach intermediate students a lot. There are 25 pieces in that collection, so I divvied them out amongst the 15 students who were capable of presenting them well in my studio at the time. And we had studio classes leading up to that event so that by the time we presented that recital, each one of those students had studied the scores of each piece so intently that they could tell you all the pedagogical challenges of all 25 pieces. I mean, it made my piano teacher heart so happy. <laughs> we presented them in a concert where I had 25 of my younger students create individual art projects based on each piece so that they could be displayed as each one was performed. I had students assigned to change out the artwork between performers. We made it a fundraiser for a worthy local cause. And I mean, the whole thing was a masterclass in studio interdependence, friends. <laughs> Now, there are so many ways you can build interdependence, and we cannot get into all of them here today, but ideas like getting your students involved in a service project, assigning them roles in a recital setting, giving them smaller jobs with a clear understanding of how they fit into a larger whole. I mean, it's all there. <laughs> So if you are interested, you can read more about this Bergmuller event and see really cute pictures um, on my series that I wrote for the Piano Pantry blog. You can check out the link in the show notes or just run a quick internet search for Varsity Musicians Playbook on Piano Pantry. It's a three series entry with lots of detail from me and Amy Chaplin. Okay. I know it feels like we're just getting started, but I am going to pretty much leave it here for right now and hope that I've given you at least a thing or two to think about today. Team sports are not the enemy, friends. <laughs> they have so much to teach us, and they have so much to teach our students. I should say that my student athletes are consistently the best at handling their nerves come performance time. They get used to the way that adrenaline surges through their bodies, so they are more seasoned to working through it. I love teaching student-athletes, truly. <laughs> now, are their schedules a total nightmare sometimes? <laughs> yes, but how I deal with that is more a matter of setting policies that are going to allow me to keep my sanity and communicating them clearly to studio families more than anything else. And I wish I could give you the magic secret to what those policies should be, but that is going to change in each of your seasons of life. So as we prepare to wrap up today, I just want to leave you with this idea that, you know, should we continually advocate for music in schools and the importance of having an arts-rich community around us? 
100%. Absolutely. Advocate away. <laughs> what we do is so important. No one feels it more deeply than I do. I promise. But are we doing any good by pitting our passions for music against team sports, which also hold a very strong place in the hearts of people in our world? <laughs> no. No, we are not. It's wasted energy and it is creating kind of a false dichotomy. And so with that intention in mind, I am going to raise my glass to you and leave you with this toast. Music teacher friends from all over the world, thank you for letting me speak my truth today. <laughs> I know that we care deeply about the importance of music study, and I agree. I mean, I think it's more important now than it has ever been. But if we are truly on the side of bettering our students' lives, we would do well to acknowledge the fact that team sports also bring a richness to their young experience, and they often build on the qualities that we are developing as well. Now, can we believe that music accomplishes even more benefits than team sports? <laughs> sure we can! <laughs> we all get to hold our own opinions on the matter. But I hope that you can start to forgive your local sports teams today and show understanding to your studio families who are simply trying to do their best navigating their talented child's busy schedule. <laughs> do they make mistakes along the way? Sure they do. But that is not our call. Our job is to honestly assess what we have energy and availability to deal with to set our policies accordingly, and to communicate them clearly. Those are the things that we have control of. The other stuff, it's a waste of energy, friends, and you have too much going on to deal with that. <laughs> and with all of that said, here is me raising my glass to letting the negative energy go. <laughs> here, here. episode 95 packed a punch, didn't it? <laughs> Thanks for listening to me today, friends. I continue to be grateful for your support as I put my many ideas out into this world. <laughs> if you are interested in more of the actionable steps behind these ideas, I have started a separate mailing list for anyone interested in being like in the know on future offerings for this material. You can find that link in the show notes for this episode, or you can always visit christinawhitlock.com slash playbook to get on the mailing list. I will also link to that great three-post series on the Piano Pantry blog, as well as how you can support this podcast over on Patreon. Until next time, teacher friends, onward and upward to the brightest days.